0: Listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers, from faith leaders to academics to artists, to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we are very honoured to welcome back to our show Rabbi Denise Eger international Jewish leader and social justice activist who was the first openly gay or lesbian president of the Central Conference of American Rabbis and author of some extraordinary books, including her most recent co-authored book, Seven Principles for Living Bravely. Rabbi Denise, welcome back to our show. Thank you. It's a pleasure
1: and honor to be with you.
0: I mean, it's it's wonderful having you here. You were last here in 2021 um, with your extraordinary book on queer liturgy. This book, Seven Principles for Living Bravely, tell us a little tell us a little about this book. Well, sure, it's um, it's a really different book
1: as it's co-authored with a, a good pastor friend of mine, the Reverend Dr. Neil Thomas. Who is the senior pastor at the Cathedral of Hope uh, in Dallas, Texas, uh, one of the largest UCC churches. Uh, we've been friends for many, many, many years uh, and did a lot of work together. But during COVID and the lockdowns, we, as we have always, turned to each other for support and sharing of best practices and ideas. And we realized that so much of what the world was going through, what we were going through as two clergy people who had ministered to people with HIV AIDS at the height of the AIDS pandemic in the late 80s and early 90s, we were being triggered by what we were living through in the coronavirus pandemic. And that began a series of conversations that he and I had uh, about trying to figure out how we might navigate uh, this particular crisis uh, and what we had learned from the last pandemic, the HIV-AIDS crisis. And uh, out of it came a really uh, this book, Seven Principles for Living Bravely, uh, which are ancient spiritual wisdom to help us navigate life's weather storms and, and bad weather that happens to everybody
0: at some point. So you mentioned the AIDS pandemic and related it to the COVID pandemic. So, what what how was the public response similar or different between those? Um, how how did you find the public response to the COVID pandemic to be similar or different to the public response to the AIDS pandemic?
1: Well, for for your listeners that remember, in the eighties, uh, the government was. Extremely resistant Mm. to dealing with and treating and caring for people with AIDS who were dying, in part because of their homophobia, right, uh, people of revulsion at LGBTQ people. uh, And so the government did nothing. And people were dying left and right. There was no focus on treatment. There was no focus on care. Um, There was no focus on trying to develop a a vaccine. Um, And and people were dying in droves. The hospitals were overwhelmed. Nurses and doctors were overwhelmed. We saw this similarly at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. Government inaction, a lack of organized response, Doctors and nurses being completely overwhelmed, uh, getting burned out by the volume of what was happening. Um, and so those similarities, um, I think, are, are, were very profound for both Reverend Neil Thomas and I, uh, because we remember being masked and gowned and, and going into hospital rooms of people with HIV when we didn't know what HIV was, just no. as in the same way at the beginning of coronavirus we all didn't know what it was, right? And here we are, all we're masked and gowned. So there were a lot of these similarities between the two pandemics.
0: Are there differences too, especially in terms of how the public responded to them? Um, in some sense, I'm, I'm wondering from what you're saying when you mentioned about the revulsion of LGBTQ people as it was expressed back then, um, is that different to the COVID pandemic in terms of people weren't necessarily blaming?
1: Well, they weren't blaming necessarily a particular group, or were they? I mean, think of what was happening from the mouth of the then president calling it the Chinese
0: well, that's true. Vi-
1: virus. Right. right. So there was a tremendous uptick in anti-Asian hate. Um, there was revulsion against science and medical science. Um, So the targets may have been different than in the HIV pandemic but we saw similar behaviors of othering of groups of people of of squashing of blaming the victim right there was a lot of blaming of people in the beginning of the coronavirus uh, pandemic well they brought it on themselves they didn't take care of themselves they didn't follow the rules they didn't do this they didn't and and there was just so much we didn't know at the beginning you know we're, we're three and a half years into this now we we know so much more uh, and the truth of, and maybe the irony is is that the vaccines that were so speedily and quickly developed um, for uh, the coronavirus uh, really were based on research that had been done to trying to develop a vaccine for HIV-AIDS. Mm. So uh, if we, that whole, we, which we still don't have, we still don't have a cure for HIV-AIDS. It's still one of the largest um, uh, chronic diseases in the world, uh, globally, um, and it, you know it's not just in the uh, L- gay, gay men's community by any stretch of the word. It's, it's it, it goes across populations, so um, it's managed more manageable now as a chronic disease. Uh, from the early early late '80s and early '90s, we have treatment some treatments, but you know, the, the research that had been done over these uh, last uh, 30 years on HIV-AIDS, almost 40 years of HIV-AIDS, uh, really also helped us prepare and launch the vaccines for the coronavirus.
0: Do you Amazing. Get, right. Do, do you get, do you feel despondent when you see similarities between the public responses and indeed governmental responses um, I mean, there was literally no talk about the AIDS crisis for a very long time. Um, and then there was, you know, when it came to the COVID pandemic, no, it's a small thing. It, it's not a, an issue. It's not a concern. Do you get despondent when you see two pandemics 40 years apart and the same kind of uh, governmental and public responses?
1: Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if I get despondent as much as I get indignant and angry. Oh. Uh, and... And feeling as if we, you know, we, the public, we, the people have to demand better of our elected officials than to reject science, uh, to, to place our efforts and supporting each other as neighbors. You know, you and I both teach and preach, love your neighbor as yourself. And if we're hating a segment of the population, yeah. I mean, no one, no one intentionally <laughs> Brought this about, right? We right. didn't do that, it, you know. So I, I think, to me, that it calls for action. It calls for uh, protest. It calls for throwing out the elected bums that did nothing, um, mm-hmm. and being activists in that way. You know, seven. These these seven principles tries to address really the trauma, some of the trauma that we've all experienced as a result. Of the coronavirus that we're still carrying around, but you know a lot of people haven't done it. So, for example, you like one of the first principles is a time to mourn. Mm. You know, uh, people have not really processed the loss that we've all gone through. Um, you know, we the time from the lockdown, we just kind of want to move on as if coronavirus is over and gone and <sighs> and out of our system. And the truth is, to to heal and to be fully realized, we, we do have to take the time to process. I mean, I don't know about in your community, but in my community, you know, there there were several people who lost multiple members of their congregation, of their, I mean, of their families, right? right? And um, Matt, what is that like to have a holiday meal with, you know, aunts are gone and uncles are gone and parents are gone and and it all happened from this one event?
0: Well, for us in particular in our community, we, in some sense, were very lucky that there were some people who um, who did suffer bereavements. But but where we were particularly hit was with the long COVID. And that's mourning. Mm-hmm. That's a time to mourn in a different way.
1: That, yes, that, and, and that's exactly right.
0: That That's the mourning of one minute we're able to function and the next minute we're on a CPAP machine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Or one minute we're working and the next minute we can't get out of bed. Um, right. And so, yeah, the time to mourn is that's, that's a, right. that's really important. And, so,
1: and, and, and it's not something that our society in general does very well. I mean, in Judaism, of course, we have lots of rituals for that, uh, lots of op- opp- opportunities woven into our sacred rituals. But kind of in American life, we kind of don't deal with death very well in American life, you know? Um, you know, we, we hide it from each other, we talk about someone's passed on, uh, we don't talk about people dying. We have celebrations of life, rather than allowing people to actually grieve and mourn and express those feelings of loss, whether it's a, an individual or person, or as you rightly say, the loss of abilities. The loss of dreams, the loss of time—all of those, those, those need to be mourned as well. So, like that's an example of one of the seven principles um, to be able to um, to build resilience and to live boldly and bravely. You need to be able to mourn. I'll, I'll tell you this great story. Uh, I was uh, I w- at a book signing for uh, Seven Principles for Living Bravely recently, and a man came up to me and said. Rabbi, I love your book. I love your book, it, it changed my life. I said, well, that's so nice to hear, thank you very much. He said, no, I really wanna tell you the story. Turned out he had had some kind of aneurysm of some sort. They were lucky they saved him, but he was in the hospital for a really long time. When was he in the hospital? March, 2020. Oh. And he said, right, he, so he said, Rabbi, I was in the hospital for multiple weeks, from March 2020 through April 2020, and uh, I heard all of these people were dying all around me. I would hear them moaning at night and people screaming, and it really, you know, was just heartbreaking. And, you know, I'm lucky I left the hospital, I rebuilt my life, I learned to do all the things I needed to do. But I read your book and I realized I had never dealt with the amount of death that I was surrounded by. He said, and I went in my room after I read your book, and I cried, and I cried, and I lit a candle, and I prayed, and I feel like a different person afterwards. And I was just so moved by his story because I think it's an example that we just we don't give ourselves permission mm. to do the mourning and grief work that we need. And then once we do it, we can go on to these other principles. That that help us build a life
0: of resilience. I, uh, that's such a moving story. Let's 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 hold it. We'll take a pause. We'll take a break and hold that story of the just the power of this book and the, and what you're sharing, um, the shared wisdom from Jewish and Christian traditions. And when we come back after the break, let's let's look a little at what it means to to have written this book with Reverend Thomas and and uh, as a rabbi and as uh, as a reverend. What, what that means so we're going to take a pause you're listening to soul searching on ksfr with rabbi neil amswich from temple Beth shalom my guest this evening rabbi denise agar co-author of seven principles of living bravely and we'll be back after this break Listening to soul searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Rabbi Denise Eger, has returned to our show. And now the co-author, also of Seven Principles of Living Bravely, and you shared before the break a, a very moving story about how this book has affected uh, at least one reader. Uh, let me ask about the the process of writing it. Um, about were there were there similarities, surprising similarities? What was it that that um, really interested you between the Christian and faith, pers- Jew- sorry, Christian and Jewish faith perspectives on writing this book. What was it that surprised you?
1: Well, that's a good question, Rabbi. I, I, you know, usually when you get a kind of more self-help book, it's kind of all mushed together. There's not a distinct voice. You know, and one of the things that uh, Reverend Neil Thomas and I have always done in our uh, shared interfaith relationship that we have built through uh, more than two decades uh, together and friendship together is to just to honor and respect our differences as well as where we come into uh, sharing ideals together. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we felt like once we started to talk, that we wanted to model in this book that we wouldn't lose our unique perspectives, our unique voices, our unique traditions and teachings, but rather uh, for each of us to share uniquely from our particular spiritual perspective, so that we don't get just something that's just a bunch of kumbaya.
0: Right, right, right.
1: right. <laughs> and, you know, you know, the kumbaya kind of expect where it, it's watered down and it doesn't really have a voice. And I think that's actually the strength of it. And I think it's modeling something very profound in a time of our society that is, is such, so deeply divided by our differences. Um, where I think we're modeling another principle, almost the eighth principle in this book, and that is to honor and respect someone who is different from you and to find the common bond, the common fabric. I mean, this is the challenge of living in a society like the United States, uh, Western democracies, to respect one another. Uh, and to respect and honor each other's humanity, even in our differences, even in our differences, instead of trying to demonize one another um, or to say, mine's better than yours. So we felt like our process of writing this book, rather than we each try to write in one voice, that we would respect our individual voices and and try and find the commonalities where we could and to honor and respect the differences where there were some.
0: Since you mentioned... Those that the the honoring and respecting someone who's different from you have you felt that the divisions in American society have become more apparent during or following the pandemic? Oh, I absolutely think
1: they're much more apparent. Um, I think the fissures in our society are just uh, tremendous at this time, and i i I really believe strongly that. Uh, people of uh, good faith, people have to assume goodwill from one another well, because we rush to assume ill will. Um, and I, I think that this is the, one of the greatest threats to democracy, uh, that we don't have a civic fabric anymore or one, or one that is greatly frayed. And I feel like COVID has done a lot to that and the environment that was created around the COVID pandemic uh, of demonizing people who wore masks. Uh, or, and again, pushing down a science and demonizing, uh, demonizing g- growing anti-Asian hate. These, these are the kinds of things given permission by a small group um, that has really infected our society. That's the, uh, that's the true virus that needs inoculation. We need inoculation from.
0: And in some sense, your hope is that your book helps provide a little of that?
1: Well, we do. We hope that people will stop and pause and think because, as we said, morning, we talked about grief and mourning before the break as one of the principles. But uh, then we talk about that there's a time for truth. And in this society where uh, where we're we are. The truth is under attack. Hmm. You don't know what to believe. You don't know who to believe, um, and there's so much pointing of fingers and hatred that really trying to discern what is truth is really critical. Um, you know, and I know you know this. In Jewish tradition, one of the names of God is the Hebrew word for truth, Emet, hmm. which you know, of course, is written with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph or like an A, mm-hmm. and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is a Tav, right? And the Mem in the middle is the middle letter. So it's almost like God's truth is all-encompassing from the first letter to the last. So so truth is one of the sacred seven principles in finding truth, and then finding your truth. Um, and of course, uh, concept of rest uh, we, we Jews know well about Shabbat, the Sabbath day, of taking time to pause each week. Um, Christians, I believe, know this as well, but it's certainly not part of our society that we live in. Right. We're a go-go-go place, go 24/7. You have to work, to respond, and the coronavirus pandemic accelerated that, right? Because we then all had to work from home. There were no boundaries. Right. You know, you, you worked at 11 o'clock at night because your office was your living room or your bedroom. And, and so we, we need to have those commandments to, to rest. Human beings weren't made to work 24-7. We need time for renewal. We need time for rest. And, uh, and sacred spirituals of both Christianity and Judaism, you know, reflect that, that, you know, we need time to be human beings, not human doings.
0: Although for some people, and I guess this is my own personal perspective, for some people, it also went the other way. And of course, COVID, you know, being a rabbi, a congregational rabbi during COVID was all consuming. But in some sense, it helped me really look at what did I value the most. And I remember turning to my kids in March of 2020 and saying to them, I'm going to make sure that until this pandemic is over, we do one thing a day together, at least. And that was something that I hadn't done in the past. And there had, had been some days where I hardly saw my kids. And yeah. so what I did was I started keeping a list because I, I found myself thinking, well, I don't know why. But we thought, well, this this will be over soon. This will be over by the end of the summer. And I don't know why I thought that. Um, but the list still goes. We're over a thousand days. So it it's not just that COVID made people work till they dropped, but it also made them reappraise. What was important to them? So, I guess, I guess a question that comes from that is: Did you notice a change in what you considered important when everything stopped at the pandemic? Did it change you in terms of priorities as well?
1: Oh, it changed me greatly. I, I do agree with you, and you know that's why, as we. Go through our seven principles we talk about a time for love a time for prayer a time for joy a time for hope because that is part of the values clarification that happened during COVID, right and that's exactly what you're talking about mm. with your children you had a values clarification of oh my gosh what's really important we're going to spend time as a family together right your day right this just becomes so important and, and clearly a tradition you're continuing to keep right, right. And for me personally it, it did it was like well, the world has so changed. I I didn't realize I liked being home so much. My wife and I were together all the time. We actually really loved it. We cooked together. We did things that, you know, our schedules never permitted to do before. And, um, you know, so much so for for me personally that, you know, uh, I am uh, leaving the full-time Congregational Rabbinate perhaps a little earlier than I might. I'm part of that great resignation Mm -hmm. uh, that has happened out of out of the COVID pandemic, people clarifying what do they really want out of life and what do they really want to do with their time. And uh, so I'm after more than 35 years in the pulpit, um, I will be stepping down and uh, focusing on writing and teaching and speaking.
0: So with, it's interesting when you call it the great resignation, I, I see it as like the great liberation. Um, <laughs> do, we, we've only got about three minutes left. Let me ask, do you think the pandemic encouraged there may be a spiritual revival, a religious revival. Um, or do you, do you think there is a religious uh, aspect to the change that some people were able to experience during COVID or after COVID? I think,
1: yes, I think absolutely. I don't know about you, but uh, I saw tremendous interest uh, in, in, in uh, exploring questions of meaning and purpose and, uh, I saw it reflected in the number of people uh, taking our introduction to Judaism classes, uh, people who were doing exactly that, asking a lot of questions about their life, their meaning, of what was spiritually important to them, and um, they were seeking something and seeking community in new ways and so I do think it has caused i wouldn 't uh, uh, an opportunity from perhaps people who had never been part of any religious community or spiritual community to try and seek that out Uh, because in part that uh, coronavirus pandemic was so isolating for many people like, you know, you're lucky you had kids, you had a family, you weren't alone, but for the vast majority of Americans uh, really had to navigate this by themselves. Right, there are more single people than there are married or couple people in America today. Uh the Pew study just came out not so long ago talking about that loneliness is one of the greatest problems, social problems in America today. And and I think this is also out of the pandemic and people what's the antidote to loneliness is finding others who share your values, uh who uh share your concerns and your questions and so uh I'm I'm hopeful that that's a positive outcome uh, for people out of this uh, very dark time that we've all been through. Mm.
0: And I, I totally agree. Sort of anecdotally, we have seen many more people come to our community during covid it's been a very notable increase in the number of people attending and wanting to belong. And as you said, looking at the Introduction to Judaism course, which is the largest one. I've been a rabbi 19 years. It's the largest one I've ever taught um, yeah. because because of that. I, I think there was a moment of us getting off the treadmill and then having a look <laughs> around and saying, but what do I really want? And I think there were people who were stuck in positions in their life and they realized this is how it is and am I happy here and does this give me meaning and so I I really appreciate your book I really appreciate you coming on the show and and sharing these seven principles I know we've only touched on them I really would encourage our listeners to 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 have a look at this book because it's a it's a really wonderful interfaith collaboration and I I really love the message of this of this book so so Rabbi Denise Eger I want to thank you for coming on our show again and, and for sharing this important work. Well, thank you
1: again for having me and for all your listeners. It's available on Amazon, Seven Principles for Living Bravely. And next month, the Spanish language version will be out as well. So uh, we well, hope for those who Spanish is their primary language, that they too might engage in living a life bravely and boldly by these seven principles.
0: Rabbi Denise Eger, co-author of Seven Principles of Living Bravely. Thank you for coming back to our show.
1: Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks time, keep searching.